What's up, guys? Welcome back to another daily Bible reading snapshot. Today, we're looking at Genesis 18 and 19 here in the Old Testament, then Matthew 6 in the New Testament. So here in Genesis 18, the promise of Isaac's birth continues. But now it's three men that show up and they see Abraham and Abraham says, yeah, you guys should stay with us. And he tries to feed them and give them all this good stuff. And they talk about with Abraham, the fact that Sarah is going to give birth to a son. And clearly, Abraham understands that these guys are from the Lord. So we think probably these are angels that come from God because we see other men that show up in Genesis 19 that are also clearly angels from God. So they're called men, they appear as men, they look like men, but they are angels, they're messengers from God. So then it says here that Sarah laughed to herself when she heard, oh yeah, Sarah's going to have a kid. And she just laughed to herself. And the angel kind of confronts Abraham and Sarah and says, oh, you laughed? And she says, I didn't laugh. And she did laugh to herself. He says, no, 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 but you did laugh because she thought it was too hard um, for, for her to have a baby. And the question that comes up in verse 14 is important. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the question. Sarah laughed. And of course, yeah, it's kind of funny that she could, as a 90-year-old lady, have a baby. That is kind of funny because clearly it was impossible for her to do this without God. But the point is, is anything impossible with God? The answer is no. Nothing is impossible when it comes to God's plan. If God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. The only thing that's impossible is for God not to keep his promises. That's basically the only thing impossible when it comes to what the Lord is going to do. Now, later on, it says that Abraham is having a conversation with the Lord, and he's talking about the city of Sodom, uh, this evil city, and also the city that was near it, Gomorrah. And these two cities were evil, and God says he's heard the outcry, he's heard all the evil that's going on. The sin was very grave. What is going to happen? What is he going to do? And Abraham prays because he knows his cousin, uh, his nephew Lot, was in the city of Sodom. And he says, God, would you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's the question. And God says, you know what? I wouldn't do that. And, and Abraham says, well, maybe if we could find 50 righteous men, would you save the city? And God said, you know what? For the sake of 50 righteous men, I wouldn't destroy the city. And then he says, well, what about 45 righteous men? I mean, I don't know if I could find 50, but what about 45? God says, I would not destroy the city if there are 45 righteous men there. Then Abraham says, ah, sorry, but what about 40? And then what about 30? And then what about 20? And then what about 10? In all the situations, God says, I would not destroy the city if we can find down to 10 righteous people in the city. And then God destroys the city. So what's the point? There's not even 10 righteous men in a city this big that are following him and seeking him and trying to live for him. It seems like really it's only Lot and his family, which even his family doesn't do what's right. Just immediately after this, in Genesis 19, after God rescues Lot with these um, with these angels that show up to the city, who the people of Lot are trying to take advantage of because they're so evil, it's just reflective of all their sin. Even as God saves them, the very thing that happens is Lot's wife does what's wrong. She's not supposed to look back at the city as God's destroying the city. She's not allowed to look back, but guess what? She looks back and God takes her out. And then the daughters of Lot do what's evil and they, they take advantage of their dad. So this whole family is messed up. Even Lot, I mean, Lot isn't the, the greatest example in the Bible, but at least it says in the New Testament that his soul was burdened because of the sin that was going on in his city. He felt a burden for all the sinners that were in the city, but he it doesn't seem like he did much about it. That's the, that's the problem. He, he stayed there in the city of Lot. He should have left. 
Um, but God has to take him out and even his whole family, his wife and his daughters also do what's evil right here in this chapter. So the the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah is a grave one, and it's a helpful reminder for us of God's attitude towards sinfulness. It's God's attitude towards grave sin, and it says that they weren't just little sinners, they were great sinners. It, it reminds us of Genesis chapter 6, right? That every thought and intention of their heart was evil all the time, continually, right? So it's what this city was like. And, and oftentimes we live in a culture that feels a lot like that. Feels a lot like people who always want to do what's sinful and evil. And for the sake of ten righteous men, right, it's helpful. God has not always destroyed uh, these nations and, and, and cultures. And one of the reasons, just like we saw in Matthew 5 with the salt and light idea, that sometimes God preserves places because of the sake of his, his righteous people that are there. Um, and oftentimes, he has to take those righteous people out. And, and But the point is, God is going to bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom regardless. And that's what we see also with Lot's story. That he, as a righteous man, is saved not because these people do what is righteous and not because God saves the city. He has to take them out as he judges that city. So we see some parallels in the New Testament to that with our salvation as well. So in the New Testament, we're looking here at Matthew chapter 6, which we're still in this sermon where Jesus is preaching. This is our third day of reading this sermon. First thing Jesus says in our, in our reading today is you need to beware of practicing your righteousness before men. But that's not all. A lot of people quote this verse and say, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Well, if that's the case, well, then the whole point of Matthew chapter 5, that in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God who's in heaven. You might say, well, that's contradictory. Well, because he doesn't say, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. If the entire point of your righteous deeds is so that other people will see it and praise you, then it says you're doing it for the wrong reason. Jesus says you are going to be like a hypocrite who shows off all this religious nature while the truth is they are doing what's evil in their hearts. And God says, I hate that. Don't do that. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a person who shows the world, oh, look how righteous I am. But the truth is I'm evil on the inside. He says, don't do that. Don't even, when you're when you're giving, when you're praying, when you're fasting, don't tell the world about how gracious of a giver you are or how religious of a faster you are or how much you pray. Don't, don't tell the world that. It says, go to God and do it with him alone. And these things are things that should be, in some ways, kept secret and private between you and God. And if other people know, that's fine, but don't do it to be seen by others. Be careful in your heart about that. Then he says, make sure that when you pray, you don't just give a lot of big phrases just because you want to be impressive to other people, which think about that. Think about how evil and wrong it is to try to impress people with your prayer. Like you think that God, the one you're praying to, doesn't know that? You think it doesn't feel like to him that you are taking advantage of him? Like just how how wrong is it? When we're taking advantage of it, and sometimes we feel that, when people talk to you and they're trying to use you for the sake of their personal gain, it feels bad and feels wrong. Imagine the God of all the earth who knows the secrets of our heart when we pray, trying to impress other people. That's that's just wrong. He says, but pray like this. And he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So this is how Christians are supposed to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing you're supposed to pray about is God's glory, how amazing he is. And then further, we're supposed to pray for God's plan, his kingdom to come to this earth and for God's will to be done on this earth, just like it's done in heaven. In heaven, it's done perfectly. On this earth, God's will wants, we want to pray that God's will be done with sinners to turn from their sin, for righteous people to live righteously and not to do what's evil. Then it says in verse 11 after that, 
give us this day our daily bread. We're praying for our requests long after we pray about God and about his stuff. We pray about his stuff first, pray about our stuff second. And then it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, which remember, this is why this is a prayer for Christians. This is not the Lord's prayer. This is not Jesus's prayer because Jesus never confessed sin for himself because he never committed sin for himself. So he's not praying for himself here. Then he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Keep us from the evil and keep us from, from Satan who wants to do us harm. So here it says, if you forgive the trespasses of others, your heavenly father will forgive you, which is a helpful reminder for us. Again, we need to be Christians who love one another and are willing to forgive other people when they repent of their sin to us. So he talks about fasting again, like I mentioned. Then he says something important. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't spend all your time, effort, money, attention, and all that stuff making your kingdom, so to speak, big here. Make it big there, then and there. Serve God's kingdom and, and you will be taken care of. So don't worry so much about building up this empire for yourself here because God is building a kingdom for you later. Your job is to engage in the work of the kingdom, which is why he says you can't serve two masters. If your God is your money or your work or your job or your sport or your success or your beauty or your fame or your popularity, then you can't serve God and that. You just can't do it. You will. One of those things is going to win. So whatever your idol of temptation is, say, I cannot serve that and God at the same time. That's why he says later, don't be anxious. See, I just love how those two things are put together. You can't serve God in money. Then he says, don't be anxious about your money. Right? Don't be anxious about what you have. The whole point is you're supposed to trust God because God is your God, not money. If money is your God, you're not going to serve the Lord. So it says right here, hey, you don't have to be anxious. You know, if, if God is your God and you serve him, there's nothing to be anxious about. Yeah, there's plenty to be anxious about when it comes to the world. There's a lot of stuff out there, but God, the ruler of heaven and earth, loves you and will take care of you. So he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that you're concerned about, those will be added to you. Don't worry about those. It's a helpful reminder for us today. Don't worry about all those other things that you're tempted to be worried about. Seek first the kingdom today and God will take care of those other problems for you. So thanks for reading. We'll see you back tomorrow for another daily Bible reading snapshot. Thank you.